0: Pro Se, Law Through 60's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with both of my co-hosts this week, Alex Lawson.
1: Hello, Amber.
0: And Haley Canal. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. I'm back. Glad to have you back. I will say, tiny bit of a miracle that all three of us are on the show at one time because I currently have COVID. Um, <laughs> Haley, you were gone for a couple weeks with COVID, and mm-hmm. Alex also had it in the same time frame. We're like dominoes.
1: We hit the slot machine, folks. Three covids. Uh, that pays out two to one, I think. Um, <laughs> I had it a couple of weeks ago. I'm I'm lucky. I only had like a mild cough. I didn't have to miss uh, any time, really. Uh, Amber, you say like, you're you're currently doing it.
0: I'm currently doing it. Throes. We'll see if I make sense on today's podcast. That'll be the test. I do want to point out for our listeners, none of us have seen each other in person. That's so true. we managed to all get it independent of one another. <laughs> yes. Tis the season, everyone. COVID season.
1: And uh, as an aside, our producer, Kelly, did want us to note that he is currently working uh, uh, with a herniated disc, uh, which is very painful and very sad for him. However, not so buzzy. There was not a herniated disc pandemic there that wasn't. shut down society <laughs> for the better for two years plus. So... Our thoughts are with him, if not the zeitgeist. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) will the Pro Se crew make it through? Stay tuned to find out in this episode.
1: We'll see. Um, We do have a lot of interesting stuff to talk about.
0: Yeah, we have um, a great guest on the show this week, Andy Pincus, who is an appellate pro from Mayor Brown, who's done a lot of work related to high court arbitration cases. So he was the perfect person to have on because just this week we got the third of three arbitration decisions from the court. That's a lot for one term. So we wanted the him to Holy sort of explain it. Exactly.
1: Almost like three podcast hosts getting COVID or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Everything in threes today.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we always love having Andy on the show. He's been on the show before um, and he's got a lot of wisdom to impart on that topic, uh, which is quite important. Before we do that, um, we do have some news to get to. I am, I'm frankly proud to say that we here at at Law 360 in general, and in pro se, we cover the legal system from all angles, I'd like to say, and particularly when it comes to litigation. But I don't think, at least on the show, we've ever covered what I think of as sort of the seed, the wellspring from which litigation proceeds, which is, of course, the official serving of legal documents to the opposing party, the serving of process, where where in the world are my, are my process service heads at? Can I get can I sound off in the chat? Okay. Uh, deafening great. silence.
0: <laughs> you know, it's deafening silence because normally it's like, uh, is this exciting at all? Why are we talking about this?
1: Yeah, well, I'd like to first say that I think the, the sort of formal serving of legal papers, if I can channel my inner Bill Simmons for a second, is kind of having a moment, you know? <laughs> No, you all might remember. Uh, I think it was a couple months ago. There was that news about Olivia Wilde getting served custody papers while she was promoting her upcoming movie in front of a live audience. Yeah,
0: that
2: was kind of strange.
1: Bad. That made that made the rounds on the celebrity beat for a while. But today, we're talking about uh, some truly groundbreaking work in this area, which deals with a law firm that provided a notice of legal action through an NFT. Oh man! Oh boy!
0: Okay, so I'm gonna need you to break down what happened, but also I'm gonna need a crash course in NFTs. I think
1: I do want to say not not to put Haley on blast, but during the <laughs> meeting yesterday we were parceling out who would talk about which story, she said, "I have to talk about this one because I am uh, the lone white man on the podcast." <laughs> uh, which puts that, me firmly, I that. firmly in the NFT demo. You
0: know? Honestly, after years of me doing this show with you and Bill Donahue, uh, it's nice to have another woman to say these statements. So yeah. loving that.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're making up for lost time there. <laughs> um, I'm not here to really explain NFTs. It's a digital asset that exists on the blockchain. So it is sort of encoded in a way that makes it unique and unreplicable, even though you literally can save it as a JPEG on your computer. That's a whole other thing. Um, but it does. it is sort of individually coded on the blockchain to give it more inherent value. Anyway, you can read about NFTs anywhere. But what we're talking about here in terms of serving legal process uh, through an NFT, I will say that you may have picked it up in my tone and the way I was describing NFTs. I kind of rolled my eyes when I first read about this. I thought it was kind of like a gimmicky thing, like a stunt. But it's actually pretty necessary when you get into the facts of the case that we're talking about. This service was the brainchild of two lawyers at Holland and Knight who had a tough task um, at hand. They were suing to recover sort of millions of dollars in digital assets that were stolen from uh, their client, which was this cryptocurrency exchange based in Liechtenstein called LCX. But, you know, it's a hack it's a cyber hacking. And so the thieves are anonymous, and so the lawyers had no one to serve papers to through conventional means. So I say mostly anonymous because LCX had been able to, uh, through some sort of you know forensic algorithmic analysis, they had been able to identify the digital wallets that were associated with the hacker, which doesn't tell you anything about the identity of them or their physical location, but it does sort of identify them somewhere out in the world of the blockchain, and that basically gives you an opportunity to serve them with something if you have that information. So the attorneys received approval to do to serve legal papers um, through an NFT that was that was delivered to this address on the blockchain from a New York State judge earlier this month, and that is believed to be an industry first. Um, it's uh, been deemed now a service NFT. It was delivered to the hacker's blockchain address, and it was uh, it was specifically a, a TRO, temporary restraining order, that froze about $1.3 million in disputed assets. Um, and the court approved that, and that's um, that's what was going on. Holland and Knight attorney Andrew Balthazar, um, he was one of the attorneys who, who uh, worked on this uh, service, told our own Sarah Martinson that, quote, Having a judge in this case recognize that a fair method of delivering information to a defendant is through a blockchain address when that's the only trace they've left is just a leap forward, really, in allowing us to bring an appropriate remedy in the right cases for the right clients. So it's a whole new world now. We are are igniting litigation, not over NFTs. There's plenty of that, (laughs) through NFTs.
0: I mean, I will say clever attorneys. That's pretty cool that they even thought to do this and, and move forward in this way.
1: Yeah. Um, and there are some interesting implications here. I would recommend everybody check out Sarah's story. It's really interesting because it sounds, like I say, sounds sort of odd on its face, but she did a good job of showing that the rules surrounding the service of legal documents have always been evolving, which makes sense. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you used to have to do it through the mail. Now you can do it through an email. I mean, that's like not that groundbreaking to anybody. And this is just the next iteration of that. She pointed out there was a 1950 uh, Supreme Court ruling that said publishing a notice in the newspaper if you know where, if you know that the person lives in that city is an adequate uh, method of service wow. in, in certain contexts. But we're still in a little bit of unknown territory here. Sarah talked to a uh, Miami law professor who talks about sort of civil procedure a lot and talked about the implications of this. And that professor basically said that if this defendant actually shows up and fights the case after being served this way, it basically validates the idea of serving through an NFT. But if they don't, and the court enters a default judgment against this uh, defendant, they could argue later, As, as I mean, they could, they could argue many things on appeal, but they could argue that they weren't adequately served. They say, we didn't actually click on this hyperlink, or we never saw this hyperlink that's buried right. within our digital wallet, or went to the wrong digital wallet. I mean, there's, there seems to be some for a non-fungible token, which is what this means, there could be some fungibility if you wanted to fight it in a legal context. But uh this was just served uh last week, so it's early days, but I guess it's also worth noting here that it probably won't go away. Crypto NFTs uh you know, these are quickly evolving areas and hacking and theft are huge problems and it's all almost always done by anonymous parties. And so if, those, if, if that continues, so too will litigation to get those assets back and the possibility of, you know, serving process on the blockchain could move those proceedings along uh, much more quickly if it gains traction.
0: Just a matter of time till we're serving um, avatars in the metaverse.
1: Yeah. It's coming our way. I mean, you know, it, it, you, you serve it to my avatar, my avatar will see your avatar in Metacourt. So, <laughs> there you go.
0: So this week for our second story, I want to do something a little bit different because I actually went down with producer Kelly to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. this week, and we talked to some of the big winners at the Burton Awards. That's an awards program that honors achievements in the law. Law 360 is one of the main sponsors of the event. So we had some access to some pretty interesting luminaries. So I basically wanted to kind of show and tell. If you will, with you okay. guys, kind of bring back, it. yeah, I want to bring back some of the wisdom from two of the standout winners of the program. First up, I want to talk about David Rubenstein. He is the co-founder of global investment firm the Carlyle Group. He previously worked in big law, in the White House, and as an attorney staffer at the U.S. Senate. So long career. At the Burn Awards, he was actually honored for his humanitarian work, which is extensive. So I asked him to share with us what he worked on that he's the most proud of.
3: I've had an eclectic view on philanthropy, which is to say I do many different things. And I like to remind people that philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity, not giving away money. So I try to give my time and my energy, my ideas as much as my money. I uh, have been involved principally in education, cultural affairs, what I've called patriotic philanthropy and medical research are the principal areas I've probably been involved with.
0: You know, you pointed out that it's not just giving money, it's giving time and expertise. So how does having a law degree aid in those efforts for you?
3: Well, the theory behind why people need lawyers is that lawyers can represent people in disputes or in resolutions of challenging problems better than they people can represent themselves. If people can represent themselves... Well, they would need lawyers. Lawyers are principally designed to provide a public service, which is to say helping other people. And so in its sense, uh, being a lawyer is a public service or a humanitarian gesture because you're while you might be compensated for it in some cases, you're generally helping somebody do something they couldn't otherwise do. And so lawyers, I think, have a sense of public service because that's what the law is premised on. And therefore, I think if you have a law background, you probably have some sense of what public service is. And if you're fortunate enough to have a fair amount of money, you probably will feel that you should do something in the public realm because you were trained as a lawyer to kind of help out the public a bit. In fact, in law schools and in law, the practice of law, pro bono publico is a very important thing. And this is really an extension of that.
0: So from those answers, you can see how much he likes giving back and how important he says that is for lawyers. One area he's really passionate about is this term he calls patriotic philanthropy. Have you guys ever heard about that?
1: I'm familiar with the concept of patriotism, the concept of philanthropy. (laughs) Uniting them seems um, like an interesting thought exercise. I mean, I'd like to hear more.
0: Yeah, that's you were exactly where I was in this interview where I was like, yeah. And what is that exactly? So David told us.
3: I coined the phrase patriotic philanthropy, but it's like many phrases misleading. Um, All philanthropy is probably patriotic. But what I meant to to convey was this is philanthropy designed to remind people of the history and heritage of our country. So when I fixed the Washington Monument or fixed the Lincoln Memorial or fixed the Jefferson Memorial or, or bought the Magna Carta and gave it to the National Archives, I was trying to do things that would remind people of the history and heritage of our country on the theory that if we have a better knowledge of our country's history, we might be better citizens in the future. That's what history is all about, learning from the past so you can make better decisions in the future. Unfortunately, we don't teach history and civics as much as we used to. And unfortunately, as a result, many people do not know much about our country's history. Therefore, as one famous historian said, we're condemned to relive the past or the mistakes of the past. So that's what I've been trying to do in patriotic philanthropy. Buy historic documents, put them on display, remind people of these important precepts that underlie these documents, and then fix historic buildings so people will visit them. And the reason that it's important to do this, I think, is that the human brain has not yet evolved to the point where if you see a computer slide of the Washington Monument, it's the same thing as going there. Or if you see a computer slide of the Magna Carta, it's not the same thing as actually seeing it. So if you actually go see it because you think it's real, it's there, it's available, you're likely to get more out of it than if you just looked at it on a computer slide.
0: That really resonates as we sit here in the Library of Congress, you know, a building that really drives home the sense of history and grandeur of America. Is there any part of preserving that historical past that you think is most important right now? I mean, there's certainly eras of our U.S. history that are less focused on than others. Are there some of those that you think we need to be paying more attention to?
3: Well, one of the challenging things about history is what do you do about people that are very talented, helped our country in some ways, but were flawed? Do we study their flaws or we ignore their flaws? For example, Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, was a slave owner. George Washington, our first president, was a slave owner. Um, there are many talented people in our country who had done some things that in hindsight, as as evolve as, as the countries evolved and had more A's have evolved, don't look so wonderful. So I think it's important to look at the past and figure out which things you want to cherish and and honor somebody about, and which things you should point out to people. These weren't so wonderful.
0: So I have one more quote from the interview with David Rubenstein. He's written a bunch of books, and one of them was called How to Lead. So I couldn't pass up the opportunity to get the scoop on how to be a good leader. Alex, I used to be your boss. Kelly, I'm currently your boss. I don't know if I'm doing a good job. I thought David might be able to tell me.
1: Well, let me first say, I mean, if he wrote a book called How to Lead, great journalistic instinct by you to say, well, I haven't read the book. How indeed? Why don't you tell us anyway?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I basically asked him. He, In the book, he collected wisdom from a bunch of people. So I asked him what resonated the most with him about how to be a good leader.
3: Well, the thing that probably resonated the most was that I was trying to justify why I wasn't very impressive when I was younger and got luckier later in life. So I divided life into thirds and saying that in the first third of life, you prepare uh, for the remaining two thirds, but very often some people are great people in that first third. They're Rhodes scholars, student body presidents, Supreme Court clerks. And since I was none of those, I had to justify how I actually got lucky later in life. So I was using the tortoise and a hare analogy, which is that sometimes The hair does really well in the first third of life, but because they don't continue to work as hard because maybe they're coasting, it's the people in the second and third third who are the tortoises who catch up and maybe do the things that are more important in life in some respects. So I try to tell students, don't just be a superstar in your first third because it's more important to be not a young global leader, but a older global leader.
0: So long story short there with that bit is that there is hope. For me to yet achieve greatness, you don't have to do it all when you're in your twenties.
1: So that seemed like great news for me.
2: I think that's good news for all of us. As <laughs> none of us are in our twenties.
1: <laughs> yeah, good um, call. Yeah, wow. Twenty, that's that's long in the rear view, Amber. I I mean, <laughs> I've decided I'm gonna be great starting tomorrow.
0: I'm giving myself a long tail. I, I can do it at any okay. time in the future, guys. Good. So there's even more wisdom, though, to be found from this award ceremony. We sat down with Dennis Archer. He was given a Lifetime Achievement Award, and I'm going to rattle off some of his background, and it's going to make a lot of sense why he was honored with Lifetime Achievement. He served as a Michigan Supreme Court Justice, a two-term mayor of Detroit, chairman of Dickinson Wright, and was the first African-American president of the ABA. He's done everything, basically. In a lot of those roles, one of the themes that kept emerging is that he has fought for increased diversity in the legal profession, both for attorneys of color and for women. So I asked him about his view of the progress so far.
4: When the American Bar Association was founded, we were not permitted, lawyers of color were not permitted to be even members. And that's blacks and browns. And there were very, very few women lawyers. When I was in law school and I'd started, I went to night school. I taught students who were considered um, uh, to be learning disabled. I taught in the Detroit public schools and I went to law school at night. And I looked around in my class and there were a handful of outstanding, brilliant women who happened to be law school participants. Today, women are over 50% or at 50% or more than our law school class, which was give which gave rise to your question of, are we seeing any difference? Well we are, and it's occurring. And it took a long time for that to occur. And in the American Bar Association, we have all kinds of women leaders doing all kinds of things. We've had any number of outstanding women presidents.
1: Now that's fascinating to hear. We both write and talk on the show about the progress or lack of progress, really among elite law firms, especially in terms of diversity. Um, Even though you know on paper all of them are eager to tell you about all these steps they're taking and of
2: course
1: and trying to improve. And you know you can decide what you know for yourself whether that's a good faith effort or not. But I mean it's certainly valuable to have some firsthand storytelling from this perspective from Dennis.
0: Yeah, and Dennis was. He was a lot more bullish on the state of the law than I expected because we do have a lot of headlines that make it seem pretty bleak, like we've stalled out or progress hasn't gone as far. And he's taking a longer view and that in a few short years, even within the span of his own career, he's seen big strides. So that actually can make us all feel good that we're at least going the right direction. One other thing I asked him about was future leaders in the law. So people in law school or young associates who are right now Wondering how should, they should approach their careers to make the most impact. Since he has this very extensive resume and he's done it all, I wanted to hear about what he would tell the next generation about how they can kind of emulate that kind of standout career.
4: The difference between when I went to law school and I started, as I mentioned before, law school in 1966, we didn't have clinical programs. Clinical programs now are very much in and they do a good job of helping to represent those who cannot afford to hire a lawyer. They fill in the void where the legal services corporations and lawyers, sole practitioners, small firms, engage in pro bono services. When you represent someone who can't afford to have a lawyer and you've got a clinical professor who works with you so they can train you and teach you in terms of what to do, how to do your interviews, what to look out for, what to do, how to listen, how to, be, how to never misrepresent anything to the court. When you have a client look you in the eye and say, thank you so much. I really thank you for And they are appreciative, especially when you win. But even if you don't win, they appreciate the fact that you took the time to hear them out and you took the time to make a difference in their lives.
0: He also had some practical advice beyond just clinical work. Here's what he said.
4: I would say to anyone, try to get the best grades you can in law school. Always be prepared. Always make sure that you are doing your homework and the like, and and you're prepared with your classes, et cetera. Read the horn books. Do all that you can do to be fully educated. And then when you practice law, be respectful of the clients that you represent. Whether they happen to be corporate America, or they happen to be, you happen to be working uh, for a um, nonprofit, or you're working for someone who work, comes into the office and says, I can't afford a lawyer, but here's what happened to me. You need to listen to the client, respect them. You always practice ethical law. And if you do that, you will enjoy what you do. And when you enjoy what you do, you have heard that old saying, if you enjoy what you do, you'll never work a day in your life because you are not working. You are doing something that you love to do.
0: So guys, taking all of this together, this is my show and tell, uh, made me feel really good about the legal profession. It's when you have such impressive people, it's easy to get inspired. So I hope our listeners get a little taste of that too.
1: Whenever someone tells you like, you should really try and get good grades uh, in law school. like that's, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's a it seems like a layup but i don't know it's a through line into being prepared um and he and that was actually like quite interesting insight i'm being a little glib there but the idea of uniting like your intellectual pursuits with like what moves you and like what will draw you to um you know exactly what you want to do with this profession which you can do anything with um so it's always and he's had a lot of different roles so, my answer
0: um, of connecting my intellectual pursuits with what moves me is the pro se
1: podcast. That's well, I right. Got here, yeah. Guys. I, that was, <laughs> that was sort of floating in the, we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this is, um, it's, it's always very interesting to hear from uh, uh, people who are uh, accomplished in this area.
0: This term at the U.S. Supreme Court has been full of blockbuster issues, with cases pending that will impact abortion rights, guns, and religion. But a trio of cases that may have flown under the radar will also have lasting impacts when it comes to arbitration. Today, we're joined by Andy Pincus, a partner at Mayor Brown, who focuses his appellate practice on cases at the Supreme Court. Andy is no stranger to huge high court decisions on arbitration, having won AT&T versus Concepcion back in 2011. Hi, Andy. It's great to have you back on Pro Se.
5: Hi. Great to be back with you.
0: Man, um, a lot of arbitration, this Supreme Court term. Um, I can't remember the last time we had three. So I'd like to just sort of get into each of the three cases and break them down one by one for our listeners.
5: Sure. I'm happy to do that. Although I do think there's one. Can I make one overarching point? Sure. Interesting. You know, I thought some people I think some people thought that you know, with these three cases, maybe the Supreme Court was going to cut back on the protection of arbitration or change its jurisprudence in some way. And I think what's striking is uh, the unanimity. Two of the decisions were actually unanimous, and the third one was eight to one, with with Justice Thomas just adhering to a, a position that he's taken for years and years in other cases. So it's interesting that arbitration issues that have been polarizing weren't this year.
0: Yeah, that is surprising, especially with the makeup of the court. This may be the one area where they agree. Um, really a shock. Everyone loves arbitration. <laughs> well, let's start with the first one they decided this term. I think it was back in, in May, the end of May. It was Morgan versus Sundance. What did the court hold in that case?
5: So the court held in that that case involved the question of how do we decide uh, whether someone has waived the right to assert uh, an arbitration clause and the protection of the enforceability of that clause under uh, the FAA? What's the legal standard uh, governing that waiver determination? And there had been a conflict in the Court of Appeals. Some courts of appeals said uh, that to find waiver, you not only have to find um, that uh, the, the party that you're trying to uh, find waiver waived uh, didn't assert the right, but also that there was prejudice to the party that's opposing arbitration. And some courts said, no, you don't have to find prejudice. So that was really the question that was teed up uh, before the Supreme Court.
0: Yes. So in that one, ultimately, the Supreme Court did decide that the workers don't have to show prejudice when fighting a delayed arbitration bid. This may move employers to seek these more quickly, right? I mean, if they could face more challenges to that.
5: I think that's right. It's a pretty narrow decision. There were lots of questions about what's the waiver standard. Is it state law? Is it federal law? And the court ended up zeroing in and saying, we're going to assume for purposes of this case that it's federal law. And we're going to just answer the question, do you have to show prejudice or not? And they said, no, you don't have to show prejudice because that's generally not required for other kinds of waiver determinations. So I think they clarified that rule. I think there's probably limited real-world importance to this case. A lot of proponents of arbitration had delayed uh, asserting arbitration in the times when it was uncertain whether they might be held uh, to engage in class arbitration, which nobody wants, or at least no defendant wants. Uh, But now that that's been clarified... uh, by Concepcion and and a case that I argued a few years ago called LAMPS Plus, I don't think you're going to see these kinds of delays, especially the delay in this case, where where the the arbitration clause wasn't even asserted in the answer. So some clarification, practical importance, I'm not so sure. I think most uh, parties that want to rely on arbitration nowadays are pretty forthright in asserting it right at the beginning of the case.
2: Okay. Well, let's turn to our next case. Um, The high court ruled earlier this month in Southwest Airlines v. Saxon. What can you tell us about that one?
5: So that case involves uh, an exception uh, to the FAA's protection of arbitration agreements, of of the enforceability of arbitration agreements. The FAA says has a provision that exempts uh, what the court has held to be Uh, employment agreements of people in the transportation business who are employed by transportation companies. And the exact scope of that exclusion from FAA protection has been uncertain and has been litigated in a variety of contexts. Folks may remember that a few years ago, uh, the court Uh, decided the new prime case. That was a case about whether this exclusion applied only to employees or it also applied to independent contractors. And the court said, yes, the exclusion applies both to independent contractors and employees. And so this case presented you know, if that was like vertical, how how deep is this, uh, is this exclusion? This was sort of how wide, what constitutes uh, a transportation worker? And in particular, this involved some gate agents uh, at Southwest Airlines, the class of gate agents who don't only work at the gate, but sometimes they have a role in either putting baggage on the plane or taking it off. And the question was, does the fact that they engage in that uh, in that activity make them transportation workers that are covered by the exclusion or not?
0: Yeah, it seems like we had a couple that were just nibbling around the edges of arbitration, if you will, sort of changing the scope or clarifying a rule. But we do have one third case that just got decided this week, Viking River Cruises versus Muriana. This one is a little different. It's a former sales rep for Viking River Cruises. And they have to pursue their wage and hour claims in arbitration. So can you lay out the particulars of that case? And tell me if you agree with me that this is the most important of the three we're talking about today.
5: This is the big deal. Yes, I think the court was very cautious in Southwest. And as I said in uh, in the Sundance, Morgan and Sundance case, about being very, very focused, very narrow. This case involved uh, how the FAA interacts with claims under California's Private Attorneys General Act. And this is a weird animal of a statute that says, if you're an employee, you can sue your employer uh, and recover civil penalties for labor code violations, not just for violations that affected you, but for violations that affected anybody else, even if those violations are totally different from the ones that affected you. And the question in the case was, how does the federal arbitration interact with this statute? In particular, remember that in Concepcion first, and then in the American Express Italian Colors case, and then in the Epic Systems case, the court said with respect to class actions, if an arbitration agreement involves a cl- has a class action waiver, that the enforceability of that class action waiver is protected by the FAA, and it precludes both class actions in arbitration and class actions in court. So, the argument was on the defendant's side, these PAGA claims look a little bit different than class actions, but basically they should get the same treatment under the FAA. And a provision that bars representative actions under PAGA should allow for arbitration only of the claims that affected the individual claimant, and they shouldn't be allowed to bring in, either in arbitration or court, those claims about other people. And so that was the question. The California Supreme Court had rejected that argument. Uh, the California, the Ninth Circuit also had rejected that argument and the court granted cert because basically following those decisions, there was an avalanche of PAGA claims. They increased tenfold uh, between 2005 and 2021. And so the question was, how does the FAA interact with this California state law rule that says you can't waive PAGA claims? They all have to be uh, litigated. And if an arbitration agreement precludes them, that claimant gets to go to court.
0: So now that the Supreme Court has cleared that up and said that these do, in fact, have to go to arbitration, what are you anticipating? Do you think we're going to see a big drop-off in pocket claims because of this? Well, I think the first
5: step will be there's going to be some skirmishing about the scope of the Supreme Court's decision. There was um, a five-justice majority, and then there were three justices uh, who would have had a a slightly different rationale for holding uh, these that the FAA requires that these arbitration agreements be enforced. So I think uh, from what I've read in the papers, the plaintiff's bar is going to try and argue that there are ways around this decision. What this decision basically said was, these PAGA claims aren't the same as class actions. It's true, but what they allow you to do is something different and something that the FAA also precludes, which is to basically say, if you want to litigate one PAGA claim, claim, if you want to arbitrate a PAGA claim uh, with respect to the individual claimant, you have to allow all of these PAGA claims with respect to other people to be loaded into the arbitration. And the, and the court said the FAA protects the ability of parties to decide not to do that, and said that once the arbitration goes forward with respect to the individual's own claims, that individual doesn't have standing to bring the claims of other people in state court. Those have to be dismissed. So I think there'll be some skirmishing about that, but I think for now, The court's ruling is clear, and I think actually the court's ruling, in some issues that it left open and left some hints about, uh, say that even though Justice Sotomayor said in a separate opinion that maybe the California legislature could do some things to allow those third-party claims to be brought in court, I think ultimately the Supreme Court is going to say the FAA doesn't allow that.
2: Okay. That's what I was wondering was how—I live in California, so I'm very curious how our lawmakers are going to— to react, um, if at all. But you you cleared that up.
0: Yeah, I, I think this leaves me wondering, what is the landscape of arbitration after a big term with three rulings? Because we had a, a obviously we've talked about some have been more potentially impactful than others, but it does seem like a little bit of a mix, right? One is allowing more arbitration. A couple of the other ones pulled back a little bit on what can be you know, brought into mandatory arbitration. Where do you think this leaves the landscape overall?
5: I think the court has resolved some questions on which they were disagreements, uh, but certainly the waiver decision and the exclusion of transportation workers decision were quite narrow and I think are going to leave some room for further litigation on issues that aren't precisely uh, addressed. And as we've been talking about, the PAGA decision, I think, will be contested. One thing I've learned, I thought after Concepcion was decided that was going to be the end of arbitration litigation, the court settled that big question (laughs) about class waivers, that's it. And it turns out arbitration is just a fountain of, uh, of issues. You know, I think that that people who are unhappy with arbitration, principally maybe the plaintiff's bar, are always looking for ways to find vulnerabilities, as they did with PAGA, a workaround of Concepcion and Epic Systems. And my guess is there'll be fights about future workarounds, uh, so there'll be more litigation and, and more for us to talk about.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I feel like arbitration is a running theme on Pro Se. It comes up all the time, and it's just a sign of how important it is as one of the mechanisms in our justice system. So More to come. And I really appreciate you breaking down the cases with us today.
5: Thanks for having me. It's been great to be with you.
0: We'd like to end our show with something offbeat, and we're going to a well that I enjoy visiting. Uh, We're talking about animals this time.
2: Yes, we are. So this week, New York's highest court weighed in on an issue of utmost importance to captive elephants everywhere. Do they have the legal right to challenge their captivity? Unfortunately for the elephants, the court says no.
0: Okay, so I'm just going to say right up top here, I'm going to have zero journalistic integrity in this segment because I think elephants are the best and they're such smart animals. I really can't be objective here.
2: I don't think I can either.
1: I will fully admit to being when it comes to like animal rights and stuff like that, I'm f- I'm like very hypocritical in some instances because I like I am not a vegan or vegetarian or anything like that, but I'm very much swayed into an activist sort of posture when the animal like displays a personality or something yeah. <laughs> and that's like and I, and I and i'll fully cop to being to being a hypocrite on that but elephants are very charming and noble animals um so what's uh, what what's this all about here the elephant was suing
2: right so this case the there's an elephant at the heart of this dispute her name is happy Aww. she is 50 years old and she spent most of her life at the Bronx Zoo. For the past 16 years, she's been living alone in a one-acre enclosure. And so, this animal advocacy group that filed the case—they're uh, very fittingly called the Non-Human Rights Project.
1: I love the name. Can right. Me just say something <laughs> in terms of like animal advocacy group names, non-human rights is extremely strong. It's
2: yes. it's pretty all-encompassing, really. I mean, okay. I feel like they could advocate for, like, my kitchen table as well under that name, but that's true anyway. So this group contends that happy is not, in fact, happy at the zoo. Elephants <laughs> are very social. They like to roam, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, they're saying happy does not belong in this one acre enclosure. Happy should be transferred to uh, like, an elephant sanctuary.
0: ok. Here's my zero objectivity. Aside, the last time I went to a zoo, I was in my like early 20s, went with my family, and it was in Toronto, which is by all accounts a beautiful and well maintained zoo. So, no aspersions there. But they had Siberian tigers, you know, the big ones, and you could see them pacing the outer perimeter of their enclosure. And it was a very, it was much more than an acre, it was a very large enclosure, but you could see the path that they just walked and walked and walked. And that was the last time I went to a zoo. That's
1: the Yeah, because they're trying, I mean, they're like literally trying to make the most of the space they (laughs) have. They don't
0: belong there. They usually in the wild have like 500 acres or some, you know, big number. They do not belong
2: in a zoo. Yeah. Zoos are just depressing, honestly. No matter how good of a zoo it is, it's depressing. Okay,
0: so Happy said in the lawsuit, zoos are depressing, I want out of here. (laughs) How did this go? Uh, Yeah, basically.
2: So the group... Their argument was that keeping happy in such a small enclosure alone is akin to torture. And legally speaking, the group had pointed to habeas corpus, which is intended to protect against unlawful confinement. So the big argument here is elephants should be entitled to habeas corpus too.
1: Uh, I'm getting flashbacks a little bit, Amber. I think you know where I'm going with this. This has this smacks of the Naruto monkey.
0: Thank uh, you photo for bringing it up.
1: The, 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 <laughs> the uh, selfie copyright uh, when the monkey picked you know picked up the camera and snapped a picture of himself. That was quite a harrowing. Uh, uh, this is just a different way of sort of transplanting a That's legal right. concept reserved for humans traditionally to an animal. So they're saying that habeas corpus applies to elephants. Okay. Uh, The court, what did they say?
2: The court disagreed. But what's really interesting, I think, is that this was actually a split decision. Oh. So the majority held that habeas corpus is only available to humans. It can't be used to challenge animals' confinement. And the majority noted that happy's confinement appears to be in compliance with state and federal laws and regulations. They also rather dramatically stated that finding that an elephant can invoke habeas corpus quote, would have an enormous destabilizing impact on modern society, <laughs> which I'm like, okay, are well, they just, is like every animal then going to file a, you know, a lawsuit? I
0: mean, arguably, <laughs> I guess. Yes. Yeah. So wait, but you did say there were dissenters here, which that is interesting. You don't see that a lot. Usually a lot of this animal rights stuff, it's kind of goes up to the court. They all agree to toss it. And that's that. Uh, what did the dissent say?
2: Yeah. So uh, to all the elephants listening, uh, the names, all the real heroes, tusk
1: heads out there, the real yeah. tusk <laughs> heads. Let's swing You're... those little tails around and and gather up here. <laughs>
2: Your uh, your judge heroes here are Judges Rowan D. Wilson and Jenny Rivera. Names that they will never forget because yeah. elephants do not forget. Good call. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they said that the majority misrepresents the role that habeas corpus has historically played. Judge Wilson said it has always been used to challenge confinement at the boundaries of evolving social norms, even by petitioners who... You know, have been enslaved, or who don't have the legal identity or capacity to sue on their own, like wives and children. So they both emphasized at the same time. They both emphasized that the confinement of wild animals is not remotely on par with you know the past enslavement or otherwise unlawful confinement of humans. But here's what Judge Wilson said quote Rather, we merely highlight historical truth." Even when these classes of human beings have, by operation of law, been denied legal recognition of their humanity, the writ of habeas corpus was still available to them.
1: I think that's like—I mean, we've all been kind of having a little fun with this segment. I think this is like some pretty interesting, like, legal theorizing here—a little bit about how you know, you know, slaves were not considered human beings. Literally, that is—that of course has evolved, but also like the strategy to bring because, like, there are there are laws you can sue for animal rights stuff. And and if they're like actively being mistreated or beaten or things like that, like you can sue for that. And they sort of hint at that in terms of like, she shouldn't be in, a, in an enclosure that small. The judges, the majority says they're in line with all the animal rights, like laws and regulations. But the idea of like, okay, they're not breaking any of those rules. Maybe we think those rules are outdated or whatever. Let's try and port over a core, for lack of a better term, human law concept to the pachyderm didn't happen to work here. I do find it to be kind of an interesting intellectual exercise, though.
0: It really is. Is there any any last hope for Happy's plight? Or are we done here with, with what's I, going on with Happy?
2: It's hard to say, but maybe. The Non-Human Rights Project said in a statement that it was heartened by the dissents. And they said those dissents really build upon previous supportive arguments in a dissent from a now-retired judge in a separate case in 2018 involving a chimpanzee. So here's what the group said. Quote, we have persuaded three judges on New York's highest court since 2018. We know we'll persuade more.
0: Okay, I mean, we'll be watching. You know I love talking about animals on this show, so we'll circle back the next time there's court action. Uh, Thanks for being with me today, Haley. Thank you. And Alex.
1: See you guys next week.
0: We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Andy Pincus, Dennis Archer, and David Rubenstein. And our contributing reporters, Morgan Connolly and Sarah Martinson. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left a written review and five stars on your favorite podcast platform that really does help other people find our show. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.